Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a therapeutic Charles Coulomb. Therapeutic? Yes. Yes. You mean to say as though I'm, I'm I don't know, curative? Uh-huh. I'm sort of medicine for the soul. Yes. All right. I'm good with that. If it works, I'm fine. Listen, uh, these days, <laughs> if anybody can get any any healing out of anything, I'm all for it. <laughs> and if I'm therapeutic, ladies and gentlemen, I'm only too happy so to be. What's new, Charles? Oh, funny you should ask. We did a Thanksgiving show. People were shocked and surprised. That was great, yeah. It was. It was a good show. It was fun. But Thanksgiving is over and done with. No more Turkey Day. And when you see this, ladies and gentlemen, although we're doing it on late Saturday night, my time, uh, it's Advent for where you're seeing this now. You are on the first Monday in Advent. And I love the Advent season. I really do. Uh, we should try to keep it like Lent if we can. That's probably easier under COVID-19 restrictions. No Christmas parties this year. So if you want, you can really keep Advent like a real Lent and not make all of the uh, allowances you have to make normally, i.e., I'll keep it like Lent except for the 15th, which is the office party. You don't have to do that this year. But what you should do, if you do keep it like that, is block out the dates, the, the particular feasts that you will allow yourself uh, not to fast and abstain. And what am I talking about? Well, December the 6th, St. Nicholas's Day, for all you barese. You know who I'm talking about, Vincenzo. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean by Barese? People from Bari. People who come to New York and establish crime empires and then move out west after a couple of generations. Carve out another oh, one. And then turn legitimate. <laughs> no, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's and, and believe me, it's not just the crime families themselves that profit. They're various hangers-on and, and, and conciliary and, 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 you know, the rest of us people who, but as your Uncle Giovanni told me, kid, you're close to this family, but you'll never be Italian. Words to live by. <laughs> but no, seriously. Uh, so you've got St. Nicholas on the 6th. December the 8th is the Immaculate Conception. And the feast, the paternal feast of these United States. That's the time to bring out the flag and, and sing uh, God Bless America, and My Country Tis of Thee, and have a barbecue in the backyard, especially if there's snow on the ground. And basically, pray for the conversion of our country on the 10th. Now, Interestingly enough, after the that, the 10th? Sorry, the 8th, my yeah. mistake. Uh, there's a 
here in, in Central Europe, we have what are called the Rorate Masses. In Spain, they call them the Misas de Gallo. The Filipinos call them the Simbangambi. Gabi, Gabi. But whatever you call them, the late night, early morning masses of Advent in late Advent are really, really worthwhile. And I, uh, I, it's, it, they're, they're wonderful, they're sublime. And if you can get to them, whether in Central Europe, in Spain, in the Philippines, or in the United States, in any parish that reflects those traditions and there are a lot that do St. John Cantius's Rorati Masses in Chicago were famous and in uh, in Southern California the Filipinos uh, you know Simbangabi is, is a big deal and then toward the end of it the Mexicans uh, in places like oh I don't know Alvaro Street will have these sorts of plays uh, Los Pastores Las Posadas Posadas, uh, or anything like that that you can get in on, do. December 16th is Our Lady of Guadalupe. But my advice is that if you get the Christmas tree, and I recommend you don't until Christmas Eve, but if you do get the Christmas tree, don't decorate it until Christmas Eve. Put your crush out, your nativity scene, but no infant Jesus and no three kings. And string up all the Christmas cards if you still get them. That's kind of a dying custom, though, isn't it? Christmas cards. Which is a pity. Um, if I were at home right now, and I were going to go out to buy Christmas cards, I would go to the Huntington Library, and I would go to Romans, and I would get uh, old masters painting, religious paintings, Send out religious Christmas cards, ladies and gentlemen. Don't send out uh, reindeer going into barns and things like that. Send out Madonna and Child nativity scene cards, Three Kings, that kind of thing. Uh, but that's that's what I would be doing for Advent if I were home. Hmm. Okay. Okay, um... Memes of production uh, time. We have one. We have Nationalize one. it. For the common good. All right, from our our Scottish fan, Ross, on Twitter. Sends in one. Uh, he's, when you're studying Latin, but you keep making mistakes. There's this creepy black goat coming through your door. So I actually didn't get this one. You got this one. <laughs> I, I did. The notion is that what you're trying to say is all of Gaul is divided into three parts. And what you do say, because of your mispronunciation, is arise, master of the dark realms. <laughs> Oops. Oops, indeed. <laughs> Study your Latin very carefully and don't mis mispronounce anything. <laughs> ah. Yeah, I didn't know they use Latin for that for that bad stuff. Yes, they sure do. Hmm. In fact, uh, there was a uh, 
an old uh, Universal Pictures movie from the early 30s called The Black Cat, starring Bela Lugosi and uh, uh, Boris Koloff. Mm. And Boris Koloff plays the Satanist high priest, and he has this incantation. And the incantation is, Cum grana salis, Cum grana salis, Cum grana salis, which means with a grain of salt. Okay, time for the questions. Oh, the questions. All right. What do we got? First one's from Anita. Congratulations to Mr. Coulomb on the Kaiser Carl book, which I just finished. Thank you. Thank you. you. I am currently reading Sean Leslie's ghost book. Next up, the Holy Grail book and Star Spangled Crown. Mm. I've also greatly been enjoying Off the Menu. It cheers me up greatly. I also find myself seriously considering the merits of monarchy. Hmm. All right. Anyhow, the questions for Mr. Coulomb. As 2020 winds down, this awful year that has so glaringly exposed to us the true state of ourselves as individuals and as nations, is there a rise in Europe in pro-monarchy sentiment? Is there the realistic prospect anytime soon of restoration in those countries that got rid of their monarchs over the last century or so? Well, that's a very hard question to gauge, you know. Is there any chance of seeing government return to the United States? I don't know. Um, I would say there's certainly some hope. There's some, certainly some positive signs. But, of course, there's a great deal of opposition to it on the part of those in charge. So it's hard to say. We'll see. There certainly are people who are in favor of it, that's for sure. Okay. So the pro-monarchy sentiment is mainly in the younger generations? Yeah. More Mm. than the old, absolutely. What is the relationship, if any, between England's break from the Catholic Church and the shrinkage of her monarchs to figureheads? Oh, a lot. A lot. Um, Henry VIII basically established the unwittingly established the oligarchy that would uh, behead Charles I through his transfer of monastic lands. Um, James II was deposed for his faith, but that deposition allowed them, allowed the oligarchy to take even more power formally uh, as the price of installing William III, William of Orange. Um... And, of course, the Stuart idea of the monarchy, and they were all Catholics after James, uh, the Stuart idea of the monarchy was much more executive, like the American presidency, than the system that they have now, which was sealed, despite George III's efforts, by our American Revolution, by George III's defeat in our American Revolution, our first civil war. Hmm. Okay. Um, question from Brian. Charles, how are the consecrations of the Episcopi Vacantes valid? Is there no defect of intention? How is this different from Anglican orders or rather lack thereof? First off, what is this that he's talking about, Charles? 
Okay, well, there are two separate things. First, the Anglican orders are the uh, the apostolic succession or lack thereof. Uh, I mean, the reason why priests and bishops are able to confect the sacraments is because they stand in the apostolic succession. That is, bishops are consecrated by bishops who are consecrated by bishops who are consecrated by bishops who are consecrated by bishops all the way back to the apostles. Now, the sacrament of orders, like any other sacrament, requires three things to be valid. Valid form, that is the words used. Valid intention, that is meaning to do what the church does. And valid uh, matter, that is to say using whatever it is. That the oil? You couldn't, well, oil for extreme unction. Mm. But you couldn't use mud for extreme unction. Yeah. You couldn't use graham crackers and punch for the Eucharist. Uh, you couldn't use two guys for marriage. Uh, this It's a question of, of the matter of the sacrament. So you need those three things. Form, matter, and uh, intent. In, yeah. Now, in the case of Anglican orders, uh in 1552, the so-called Edwardine Ordinal was uh, changed from the the ritual of the Roman Rite by uh, Archbishop Cramner to reflect a Protestant understanding of the thing. And so there was a defect not only of intention but of form. Now, de defect of intention is the most... Uh, difficult to pin down of the three because form and matter are kind of obvious but intent uh all the church asks out of any minister of the sacraments is to sort of vaguely want to do what the church does which is why for instance the jewish doctor in an emergency can validly baptize he doesn't have to believe what the church believes he all all he has to do is want to do what the catholic church does when they baptize somebody so he sees the infant is dying. He knows the parents are Catholic and would have wanted the kid baptized. So he baptizes the kid with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. It doesn't do him any good. But he intends to do whatever that weird thing is that Catholics do when they baptize. And that is as much intention as is required. Simply to want to do what the church does. So... With Anglican orders, there was a uh, with, with the Edwardine ordinal, there was a, uh, a defect of intention, certainly, but that's vague. It was more importantly a defect of form. Um, a hundred years later, under Charles II, that was actually corrected because Charles II was very Catholic-minded, and in fact converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. So the Carolite Ordinal does not have the same problems that the Edwardian Ordinal did. But a hundred years had passed, and the succession was broken. So, for instance, I could take the Roman Pontificale and say the words of ordination over you, but you wouldn't be a priest because I'm not a bishop. <laughs> there would be no no uh, problem with matter of form 
and there would be no problem with matter of intent. But I could not do it. I'm not a valid minister of the sacrament. So by the time that hundred years had gone, there were no more valid priests amongst the Church of England. Now, with the Episcopi Vagantes, these are people who at different times, and we're talking about folks like uh, Rene Vallat, Matthew Harris, uh, sorry, Arnold Harris Matthew, who for whatever reason acquired valid sacraments, sacraments, uh, the sacrament of orders that the uh, Catholic Church considers valid, and then consecrated people as bishops, who consecrated people as bishops, who consecrated people as bishops, who consecrated people as bishops, down to the present. Now, why are they valid? Well, they're valid because the, the usually the Roman pontifical is used. Not always. So you always have to check. But usually there's no problem with validity of, of form. No problem with validity of intention because they plan to make bishops out of them who could do everything a Catholic bishop can do. And usually no problem with validity of matter because that's the person himself. Well, Brian was specifically asking about the intention. and Do they truly intend to do what the church wants them to do? In terms of creating a person who can perform all the things that a bishop of the Catholic Church can do, yes. They want to create someone who can confirm and ordain and consecrate. But they're kind of loose cannons. Yeah, I There's a problem cannons. with authority there a little yeah, bit. Oh, yeah, but authority has nothing to do with validity. It... it you mean authority has nothing, uh, is not relevant to the intention? Yeah, precisely right. That's why heretical sacraments are valid if they have valid form, valid intention, valid matter. This was something that was a big deal in the two and three hundreds AD. This stuff was fought over, hammer and tongs, tooth and nail. And oddly enough, the popes always stood for the whitest possible uh, application of this stuff. Even when people like St. Cyprian of Carthage said, no, 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 it can't be valid outside the church. No. According to the popes of that time, yep, it is. The, uh, the sacraments work of themselves, ex opere operato. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, this is a question which sort of emanated out of perhaps one of the most interesting pre-show segments we'd ever done, which uh, was on... We've done some really weird ones. We've done some really weird ones, but this was a particularly interesting one on... Um, I forgot what what weird priest it was focused on, but... Oh, the Highgate Vampire. That's right. What was his name? Uh, Manchester. Yeah, Bishop Manchester. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so all these weird bishops of the Catholic underworld, so to speak. Um, so that's only available on pre-show to the patrons. So if you want that, $5 a month, a lot of really uh, – we've been on a roll, as one of uh, our patrons recently wait, said. Wait a minute. Do you, are you say, do you mean to say that if they pay a lousy 5 bucks, they'll find out what I had to say about the Highgate Vampire? 
That's right. You mean, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're talking about the Highgate Vampire. We're talking about the vampire case in London in 1970. Yeah, it's pretty weird, right? Yeah. For only $5. Huh. <laughs> but then they'd find out about the Highgate Vampire case. They'd find out uh, a lot more than that, Charles. There were a lot of interesting things we talked about. That's weird. And the Highgate Vampire? And the Highgate Vampire, yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Who'd have thought that here in the year of our Lord, 2020, with you in Arcadia, me here in furthest Austria, we would be discussing a, a vampire case from London in 1970. Who would have thought? Stranger than fiction. I would say. I would definitely say. I remember the Highgate vampire case when it happened. I was 10 years old and a, a big Dark Shadows fan. Hmm. So you better believe I followed the Highgate vampire case very carefully. Okay, a question from Michael. Could right. Mr. Coulomb discuss the integral humanism of Jacques Maritain? He could, yes, definitely. And if so, would Mr. Franchini be so kind as to request that he do so? Yes, I don't know, would he? Yes, I would. Charles, I humbly request that you please do so. There was a man once named Jacques Maritain. He preached something called integral humanism. Yeah, we could gather that from the question itself. That information is literally embedded right in the question. But thank you for rehashing that first, Charles. <laughs> Let's control ourselves, shall we? <laughs> All right. Basically, um, there was a French uh, thinker and philosopher of the royalist persuasion called Charles Maurras, and he his doctrine he called integral humanism. Uh, sorry, integral nationalism. Maritain had been a disciple of Maurras, and he wanted to be, shall we say, a little bit wider and so forth than that. And so he applied Maras's teaching on a wider scale, and for him, integral nationalism became integral humanism. Now, more than that, it's hard for me to say, because I haven't read that much Maritain. In fact, the only one of his books I was able to get through was his last one, the Peasant of the Garan, in which he basically reneges on everything he taught. Well, the reason is that he felt himself responsible for a lot of what happened after Vatican II. And he really didn't like a lot of what happened after Vatican II. And so, in The Peasant of the Garan, he re-examines his own thinking, his own ideas. So while I can't recommend a lot of Maritain's books, I will and shall recommend The Peasant of the Garan. You see, he was a close friend of Paul VI, and Paul VI applied his integral humanism in ways I really can't explain because I don't understand them, to uh, the problems of our day and came up with various of his answers, answers which 
in retrospect, weren't all that hot. This has no relation to integralism, right? No. I mean, you well, really haven't even... Yes and no. Uh, it does in the sense that integralism... Moras applied the ideas of integralism to nationalism, hence integral nationalism. What Manitown tried to do was to apply integralism to humanity as a whole. And that becomes very, very difficult because humanity as a whole is pretty vague. You know, in other words, when you're speaking of a Catholic people or even of the, the Christian peoples as a group, that's one thing. But the intellectual, the mental universes inhabited by the other non-Christian peoples of the planet are extremely different from each other and from us. You know, it's not like Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Jews are closer to each other than they are to us. No. They're as alien to each other as they are to us. This guy was a... Was he a contemporary of either Deschardins or um, yeah. Van Balthazar? Because it seems like he's trying to do the same thing. These people want to do this all-encompassing... Uh, Truth that's under you know underlying everything yeah. that is, yeah. it, that just misses the mark. Well, you know? it does. But if you think about the period they lived in, and you think about what ultra nationalism and particularism did, you could see what they were trying to revolt against. And of course, their solutions are often worse than the problem to begin with. But still, hmm. you can understand why they did what they did and why they said what they said. Okay, so you're not exactly a big advocate of Maritain. Uh, no. I'm not an advocate, but I also don't hate his stinking guts either. <laughs> okay. Right, a bunch of questions from Anastasius. Oh, man. He's a new patron. He's come out, he comes out guns blazing. All right, he says... Dear Mr. Coulomb, in one of the episodes of Off the Menu, you spoke about the Holy Roman Empire as a continuity of the notion of Rome as a political entity re representing the Christendom. I really like the idea of all baptized Christians being part of the empire and the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire being interpreted as nothing but a long interregnum. But how come that even in the medieval era, subjects of other major Catholic countries such as France and England never saw themselves as part of the Holy Roman Empire. Actually, they did. The proof of the pudding is that uh, at the, um, on, on the Good Friday Collects, at the Exultate on Holy Saturday, they prayed for the emperor. Uh, Henry VIII and Francis I uh, competed with Charles V to be elected Holy Roman Emperor in the election of 1517. And when Henry VIII broke with the Church of England, he declared his independence from the Holy Empire. So the fact is they actually did consider themselves part of it. It's just that being part of something was not the oppressive, I'm on top of you now, you worthless dog, by the way, it's COVID, you better hide in your house, sort of governance that we're used to. <laughs> what? That was a great 
modifier what? description of uh, our government. Yeah, it's well, not the same. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we live under people who own us and micromanage us. And the medievals were, were uh, you know, benighted people who didn't understand. And so they were not micromanaged and ruled in the way we are. Right. What? Look, when, when you're talking about lesser breeds without the law who don't understand that you're not really governed unless you're o you only do what you're permitted by your masters to do from second to second and moment to moment. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Uh, how many people did you have? I hope you celebrated outside. Did you wear masks? I don't know nothing about nothing. Mm, I didn't think so. Freedom. I experienced freedom on Thanksgiving, but... What? But... How dare you? I don't recollect exactly how. I'm not uh, at liberty to say. I see. You're being vague. So basically, you're lying to your owners. No, I'm following their example, see, because I believe Newsom was communicating uh. us to us through his actions. I know we know his hands are tied. He has to follow the pack. But when he was breaking his own rules, he, he was speaking to us. his rules. What no? crap? No, he wasn't breaking his rules. What a crappy thing to say. Breaking his rules. All right, let me ask you a question. Do you remember <laughs> Doug the dog? Yeah, that that was my dog. Yeah. Yeah, you remember Doug? Yeah. All right. You remember when you throw things and Doug would go fetch him and bring him to you? Yeah. Okay. Now, if I if I threw something to you, would you bring it back to me? N what are you throwing at me? Frisbee, a stick, something like that. No, I would just look at you and laugh at you. Well, yeah, exactly, and I don't blame you. Because you're not a dog. Okay. Doug was your dog. Yeah. All right. Now, does the fact that you would not fetch a stick or a frisbee for me make you a hypocrite when you when you had your dog do it? No. 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 Of course not. Because Doug was your dog. You were his owner. Got it. Okay. Okay. So Gavin Newsom, by ignoring the masks and having all his buddies, you know, uber close and tons of them and no social distancing, he's not a hypocrite. He's an owner. You're not a hypocrite if you don't do what you have your dogs do. I get it. I see. Yeah. I think you should be, you should apologize to our master. He's good to us. He lets us live. Notice he hasn't ordered us to jump off a bridge or to kill ourselves. He could because he owns us. And it'd be his right. And you have the unmitigated gall to jibe at him because he's simply exercising his right as a master. Do you see how bad you are? I do now. Good. I'm glad I've helped you with your needs. And let that be a lesson to all of you out there with your resentments, your foul. Oh, my masters do what they want, but they won't let me. 
Well, you know what, kids? We don't have that right to criticize our owners. We should feel grateful they own us. Okay. So our goal should just be a good dog. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Okay. And if we're good, we'll get a pat on the head and maybe an extra milk bone. All right. Uh, more questions. I got extra pats on the head for that. Yeah. Because anyway. <laughs> I'm good. I'm not like you. I'm a good dog. I bark when they tell me to. <laughs> what? You didn't hear him off camera? He said, beg. That was Governor Newsom. Yeah. He thinks I'm cute. He doesn't think you're cute. He thinks you're bad. You'll be punished. <laughs> okay. G.K. Chesterton believed France and England were also a continuation of Rome, but what justification did they have to be politically separate from the Holy Roman Empire? Well, they weren't, for the reasons I mentioned. Why did Chesterton think they were? Oh, oh no, they, they believe, he believed they were a cont uh, continuation, too. Okay. Okay. Uh, was there, at any point in history, any claim by the Holy Roman Emperor on Christian people outside the borders of the Holy Roman Empire? That's a really good question. And I'll tell you, when Theodosius the Great made baptism entrance into Roman citizenship as well as entrance into the church, it made the Catholics in Persia uh, difficult because uh, Rome and Persia were rivals and frequently at war. And as a result, until the rise of Nestorius, the Persian emperors, Yazdegerd, and people like that, persecuted the, uh, the, the Christian Persians horribly. Then a funny thing happened. Uh, Nestorius was condemned and fled to Persia. And the Persian emperor of the time, I forget his name, basically backed the purging of the Orthodox from the Persian church and, the, and put the Nestorians in charge. And from that time on, the Nestorian church in Persia no longer had trouble with, with the government because they were the church. And they eventually, their missionary efforts spread from Persia throughout Central Asia all the way to China. So it was kind of a, a strange situation. Uh, and it was similar with Persia and Armenia and all that because they all became an opposite which was the opposite heresy to Nestorian, Nestorianism. Nevertheless, uh, there was still a connection with Rome in the sense that the prayers for Christian rulers that had been the prayer for the emperor was maintained in the liturgies of all these peoples. Hmm. So very vague, but still sort of kind of there. Right. So that's it. Those are basically the only times... Yep. Okay. Um, so he goes on to say, since a large number of 
Iranian young people recently became interested in monarchism and Pahlavi's westernization, I think there is now a good opportunity to evangelize the country considering the fact that Pahlavi monarchy was probably the most Christian-friendly regime in Persian history. Oh, very true. The Shah's wife and his sister and Iranian minister of culture were all Roman Catholics. Yes, very true. Shah also built a number of beautiful Catholic churches in Iran, in many of which were uh, many of which were destroyed or closed by Muslims in 1979. What is your advice for evangelizing a group of people who are ardently monarchist in pro-westernization? Well, I mean, the very fact that the Pahlavis were pro-Catholic. Uh, I mean, that, that should be repaid by Catholic Iranians, you know? Uh, there was some rumor that the Shah himself had converted at some point. I know that. I heard it growing up. Uh, and whether or not that's true, because I also heard that he was really Zoroastrian, but whether or not any of that was true, um, I would definitely say that if, it's, if it can be done, the restoration of the Pahlavis would be a tremendous thing, objectively speaking, for Iran, and a wonderful thing for the church itself. The other thing that's important to remember, as far as Iran goes, is that uh, since the 1300s, there have always been at least a small minority, not just of ethnic Christians, Armenians, Assyrians, and all that, but of Latin Rite Iranian Christians, Catholic Iranians, a very small number. Isfahan was the diocese traditionally. It moved at some point to Tehran the way the capital did. But at any rate, um, what I would say to young Iranians who are interested in the faith is that Iran, of course, pre-existed Islam. It was Zoroastrian. Uh, it should have become Christian. It didn't. And as a result, it became Muslim. Uh, but like every other nation, including my own, Iran will only fulfill itself and complete its vocation if ever it becomes Catholic. Now, mind you, at that point, Iranian Catholicism would be deeply native, as much a part of the culture as it is in Italy or Spain or Austria or France, because that happened gradually. It won't happen all at once. Um, if you try to evangelize your country as things stand, you have a better than average chance of becoming a martyr. I'm very sorry to say that, but it's true. Nevertheless, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's interesting that in the English college in Rome during the reigns of Elizabeth and James, when they would train Englishmen as Catholic priests to go back to England, almost certainly to be martyred. Before they left, they would sing the Te Deum and the Dies Irae. Hmm. The Te Deum, thanksgiving that they had achieved their vocations, and the Dies Irae for their almost certain execution. Now, I certainly would never presume to advise people to become martyrs. 
but I know that if you are a Catholic and a citizen of a non-Catholic country, which you love as your mother country, then you do have an obligation to try to evangelize it. As far as individuals go, if you try to go back to Iran and make converts, you'll probably die. And humanly speaking, I could not advise you to do that. But martyrs go to heaven. You have a you have a unique position. Yours is an ancient and honorable and noble culture, which, however, can only find its full fruition within the faith. In a sense, you're like Kateri Tekakwitha, who the more the lily of the Mohawks, who was the product of generations of pagans, but who was at once the the reward and the fruition of her people. So, my advice, come into the faith. Know that if you go home to try to spread it, you'll probably be martyred. I can't advise you to do that. But if you do, I can ask you to pray for me and for Vinny. And know that you'll certainly have our prayers. I've known several Iranian converts. And uh, yours is a very difficult road to hoe. I wish I had something better to give you. But, of course, God himself will reward you far better than ever I could. Um, Reza Shal Pahavi was a very noble man, humanly speaking. Yours is a great country. You know, I don't know if I ever mentioned this uh, during the show, but when I was at the Mexico Military Institute, I had a classmate named uh, Navid Damizadeh. Uh, his brother was named Daoud, and they were both cadets. Daoud was here ahead of us. Navid was my classmate. Navid was a good friend of mine. Well, the 79 revolution broke out while we were there uh, at school. And uh, <clears throat> Navid and Daoud's parents were killed. And Navid uh, died of an aneurysm. And uh, Daoud went insane and died four or five years later. So the Iranian Revolution was very uh, present to me while it was happening. What can I tell you, Anastasios? What can I tell you? Um, God bless you and all your people. Hmm. Okay. You've never said that before. 
Oh. I didn't know that. Not enough. Okay. Um, he has another question. Was Action France wrong about the Dreyfus affair? Action well, Francaise. He says Action France, so I don't need to pronounce it because he didn't pronounce it. <laughs> All right. All sources I found online showed that Alfred Dreyfus was totally innocent. That's correct. Did Action France ever apologize for the slander? Did the Dreyfus affair have any effect on excommunication of Action France? What do current French monarchists think about the Dreyfus affair? Okay, firstly, just because you didn't find it online doesn't mean it's true. I know I hate to, I hate to add that, that bit. To the best of my understanding, Dreyfus was not actually the, what he was charged with was the, the major figure of a uh, German intelligence ring. But he was involved in a minor sense. So I believe he was guilty, but not as guilty as he was painted to be. Um Did that have anything to do with the Action Francaise's uh, excommunication? No. What it had to do with was Charmoras for most of his time. He came back to the church about five years before he died. But for most of his career, Charmoras, the philosopher and, and animating spirit of Action Francaise, was, uh, although he pushed for the position of the Catholic Church in society, had said that uh, France is Catholic, full stop. But he was not a believer. He was a positivist. And so he saw the importance of Catholicism being simply the fact that it incarnated the spirit of France. And this is what was wrong, and this is what his enemies were able to wangle into an excommunication. Uh, because, of course as with Unamuno in Spain, the importance of Catholicism is not that they're enduring, that it's the enduring spirit of France and Spain. The importance of France and Spain is that they are expressions of Catholicism. Hmm. But having said that, uh, the very first thing Pius XII did when he became Pope was to lift the excommunication against Action Francaise without asking anyone to retract anything. In fact, the excommunication of Action Francaise was not only unjust, but it split the church in France as badly as the Radier under Leo XIII had done. And it was, in my humble opinion, as equally ill-judged. Hmm. Okay. Um... Anastasius has a really nice PS that I'm going to read, and it's interesting to comment on. I am now translating lots of traditional Catholic resources and devotional writings into Farsi, most of them for the first time. I'm also translating Belloc's Europe and the Faith. I am considering translating one of your essays on Catholic monarchy into Farsi as well. Feel free, feel free. You know, 
you can't overstate the impact of translating like that. I mean, think about that. So many Catholic resources are probably not available in Farsi because there's not really that much money in it, for one. No, no. And so just the act of translating that and making it available, in my opinion, there's going to be so much fruit from that. It's really, I think, hard to even fathom. You know, if you really just think about it for a second, the dissemination of that information in this, you know, it's really one of the few things that where good takes advantage of this age of information and where yeah. information can can spread like that. It's really um, – that's really such an incredible uh, endeavor, Anastasia. So God bless you for that because – I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, imagine like if we didn't have writings of, you know, Teresa of Avila, you know, Thomas Akempis, all these other, uh, Dom Garaget, you know, that such a such a deprivation. So many of these great books that, that are on our shelves, I mean, practically all the saints, really. Yeah, pretty much all the saints, they it needed to be translated. And these people who live in these countries don't have access to that. You know? Yeah, it's true. So, it's really wonderful. Okay. I, I, I must say that I'm, I'm, Anastasius, I am very, very touched. Hmm. I, I mean, I'm touched. Well, you know, my, my brother's best friend who just died uh, just before I came here to Austria. Amanis Fandieri, uh, was, as you might guess from the name, Persian. He was actually half Persian, half Polish. Uh, his mother was a Polish refugee in World War II who went to Iran uh, after the fall of Poland with the Germans and Soviets and met her husband. And then they emigrated to L.A. But Aman, uh, the only phrase in Farsi I know is Bale, Bale, Babajun. Which means, yes, yes, dear father. Which we would always hear him say on the phone. Bale, bale, babajun. And his father ended up converting to Catholicism before he died. Not deathbed either. Um, we always used to tease Amon about the Shah before the overthrow. You know, when, when the Shah was still running the show. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know... Would the Shah approve of that? Maybe this is my ignorance, but Iran seems to be a very strange com- uh, country for a refugee to to go to. I mean, are, are, there's, a, na- there's a lot of options now. there, right? It is now, but you've got to understand before Khomeini, Iran was a very cosmopolitan place. It was like Egypt under Farouk. And you had a lot of people. Uh, you met my friend uh, uh, Fyodor Yakimov, yeah? No. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen him on Facebook, yes. Yeah, well, Fyodor, his family are white Russian. You know, they lost in the Civil War. So where did they flee? They went to Iran. And he was born in Iran. He went to the Iranian army. 
and he was for a time the standard bearer to the Shah. Okay, but even if at that time it was a nice place culturally, it's so different. I mean, are there churches there? Is it is there? There were, yeah, there there were, and of course, if you spoke French, you had no problem. Hmm. Because all the educated Iranians spoke French, which is true in every educated country, of course. <laughs> what? They're all right. No, of confused. course, of course. No, it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, just thought I'd point that out to you in case you forgot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So it's so. So you're saying not only was it not a strange choice to go to Iran, but it was a good choice. Yeah, well, it was a good choice for them both for Mrs. Esfandieri and for the Akimovs. Mind you, the Akimovs went there after the Russian Civil War, and Mrs. Esfandieri went uh, during World War II. But uh, you've got to bear in mind, too, that we think of Muslim countries today as run-down and annoying. But uh, places like Iran, Egypt, Morocco, even Turkey, in Constantinople, were very cosmopolitan in those days. If you went to a place like Istanbul or Alexandria or Tehran or Tangier, there were people of every nationality imaginable. There were fine restaurants, beautiful hotels, casinos, all the appurtenances of, ev of everyday life. Well, yeah, I, I admittedly, I, I do picture rundown and, and stuff like that. But on top of everything else, I picture the desert. Well, the desert isn't in the cities. I mean, uh, but, I mean the climate is, is such okay. that. Have you ever heard of 29 Palms? That's over uh, by, uh, yeah, that's in California, right? Yes, I know. Yes. Yeah, it's a desert. Uh huh. It's I wouldn't want same... to live there either. Well, no, but it's got the same climate as Santa Monica. What's the difference? Santa Monica is on the seacoast, and all the places I've mentioned are on the coast. It, it, it doesn't have the same climate as, as Santa Monica. That's not true well, at Santa, all. Santa Monica is on the seacoast. The point is, if all you knew of California was San Bernardino and points east, you would think it was an utter dump. But the places where refugees would live in Muslim countries were all on the coast or near the coast. And they were all very pleasant. So you're telling me the majority of the Iranian population... Oh, okay. Uh, is, the majority is of the refugees the went to the parts of those countries, Iran, Turkey, Egypt, Morocco, that were by the coast, were very temperate, very pleasant, and had lots of restaurants, hotels, casinos, libraries, and etc., yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Refugees telling can you, afford that? They can afford that good neighborhood? Yeah, more or less. How is I mean, that? It's like, well, it just is. I mean, it's like all the refugees from Central Europe you. that came to L.A. in the 30s and 40s, they didn't move to San Bernardino. They moved to Hollywood and Santa Monica. I guess so. That's interesting. It is so. I mean, I, I've known a lot of them. I know this. They didn't come from Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia 
to live in San Bernardino or Riverside. Hmm. They came to Hollywood. They came to Santa Monica. They, they came to Beverly Hills. They came to Malibu. Well, similarly, if you went to Morocco from wherever it was you were fleeing, you went to Tangier. You didn't go to City Belabe or something out of the out of the desert. Hmm. And so places like Tangier became places like Santa Monica or Hollywood. You know, they were very multinational. But wouldn't the sheer event of being a refugee city deteriorate that city? No, if anything, it elevated it, as it did with Hollywood and Santa Monica in the 30s and 40s, because you had all these people who knew stuff more than the locals. So massive immigration like that, a huge inflood is good. If it's a huge flood of educated people who know stuff and who are like filmmakers, writers, artists, and so forth, yeah, you're right. That That's actually a good thing. Yeah. But wouldn't the law of averages say it generally it wouldn't be like that? I mean, most people no, are not high, well-educated. And they can't afford to leave their countries either. People like that stayed home. They didn't, they didn't flee. Hmm. They stayed home and worked on collective farms and wished to God that he would kill everyone who owned them. Hmm. Interesting food for thought, Charles. This was, uh, we got into an interesting area of discussion on this one. Sorry to bring reality into any question. You know how I am. All right. Okay. Uh, gratuitous plugs. We have uh, We have so many books in our bookstore in the $5, $5 deal section for $5 or less. I just want to go through them really quickly because there's a lot of, of hidden treasures found in our and bookstore. And if, lo- if you load up on them for stocking stuffers, you could take advantage. They're perfect the 20- stocking stuffers. Perfect. They are perfect. But mind you, if they're five bucks a piece, you get five of them. You know what? That's free shipping. Free shipping and handling. While supplies last. Void were prohibited. Sorry, no CODs. Operators are standing an by. Not an actor. Act That's now. right. <laughs> Act now. That's right, Vinny. <laughs> All right, you ready? Ready to go through these? I'm ready. All Born right. ready. The Secret of Mary by St. Louis de Montfort. Oh. St. Joseph, Fatima, and Fatherhood Reflections on the Miracle of the Sun. Very good. Yeah. That's a very popular one. St. Michael the Archangel. Ooh. This is perhaps the most popular one. 30 Favorite Novenas. When I showed you this first, you said this is a very old. It's it's older than I am, and I love it. Absolutely. 30 Favorite Novenas. It's great. Yeah. St. Jude Thaddeus, Helper in Desperate Cases. Indeed. And we're all that now. That's right. We should all be praying to St. Jude for help. Constantly. Our Lady of Fatima's Peace Plan from Heaven. Another older one than me. Yeah. The the Reign of Christ the King in Both Public and Private Life by Michael Davies. Very worth reading. I, and I remember Mike very well. He wrote a lot of epic books. Uh, he sure did. Yeah, he was an important person. 
This is another very important one. Devotion to the Sorrowful Mother. Um, I think yeah. that's partly inspired by Father Ripperger because he's very into uh, uh, Our Lady of Sorrows. Um, yeah, the the devotion, the um, the Seven Sorrows devotion. Um, oh, this is here we go. We get to do this devotion to the Precious Blood. Guess who else has it? Yep, Charles, yep, yep. That's his. So uh, that's we talked about that a uh, couple episodes ago. So that's that's interesting. I need to get into that. Uh, uh, favorite prayers to Saint Joseph. That's a big one. My mom is a huge fan of Saint Joseph. You know, they say, they say that each member of the Holy Family has their own special millennium. That Jesus, you know, his, you know, millennium was the first, yeah, you know, the first thousand years after his, you know, life, and, and then it was Mary, and then now it's Saint Joseph. I don't. You know, I'm agnostic on this, but what do you think, Charles? You think you think that's possible? Because apparently, there's a lot of stuff going on in Brazil over Saint Joseph, if I'm not mistaken, or I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm agnostic too, but I'm all for it if it's true. That would be interesting if Saint Joseph was really starting to get involved, because he's always overlooked, you know. And what did Leo XIII tell us? Go to Joseph. Joseph is the patron of the Universal Church. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And with all this, uh, what's the word? Uh, oh, you're not going to say it. No, you're not going there. Leave Cardinal McCarrick out of this. <laughs> it's oh, not his fine. fault that his reign of slime was carried on with the assistance of many people who are still in positions of power in the church. Leave it alone. No, but all this effeminacy. Hey. You know, Men not knowing how to be men. Men hey. addicted to pleasure. Hey. Hay is not a refuge. Hay is what horses eat, Charles. As a... <laughs> no, it's an objection based upon you're not being nice. Oh, oh, oh okay. That makes sense. Yeah, All my right. tone. All right. well, as long as we got that one down. Uh, the Agony of Jesus, a meditation on our Lord's agony in the garden. By, pa by Padre Pio. Padre Pio. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And saving the best for last. Uniformity with God's will by St. Alphonsus. And this is perhaps the best value. Secret of the, the Rosary. Secret of the Rosary. St. Louis, Louis de Montfort. Yeah. That is another one that's older than I am. And that edition has been around forever, but it's really worth it. Oh, yeah. There's a reason why it's been around forever, because it's great. It keeps selling. So all of these, uh, not all of them are $5. Some of them are $2, uh, they're, but they're all under $5. So Under $5. So get a ton of them. Get 25 bucks worth. Get your free shipping and handling. And stuff them stockings. Yeah, and so these, I think, are appealing because you don't have to be a big-time reader, per se. You know, these are bite-sized little um, resources that are pretty important, you know? Anybody can, yeah, that can is. enjoy this. Yeah, yeah, but it's... 56 big pages. 56. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, and, you know, the thing about these is that a chunk of them are prayers... Uh, 
And these are only probably less than half of what we've got. Just looking at the inventory, uh, we have a bunch of them on hell. What is hell like? But I figure, you know, with our people, you know, that's not relevant to them. You know. Oh no. Daily. Do you have the daily pilgrimage to purgatory? The daily pilgrimage to purgatory. I have not yeah. heard or seen that one ever. All right, never mind. No, tell us about that one. That sounds no, fascinating. No, that's fine. Support. I don't think that's by Tan though. Most of these, actually, uh, in addition to most of these, um, practically all of these are from Tan books. Well, you know, you know why? What Tan did, like I think, devotion to the precious blood was originally, yeah, by the Benedict Convent of Perpetual Adoration in Clyde, Missouri. Hmm. Now they used to, they put out a lot of the uh, Benedictine nuns of Perpetual Adoration in Clyde, Missouri, put out a ton of little pamphlets yeah. amongst, and they had a lot of them. And when I was a kid, they were the mainstay of a lot of parish pamphlet racks. Uh, but the nuns don't do that sort of thing anymore. And so Tan took it off their hands, kind of like the Confraternity of the Precious Blood books, which mm. used to be everywhere, um, and which uh, Tan now publishes instead. And, yeah, we, you know, we need to fill our churches up with these again. Uh, perhaps it's not the time right now because there, well, in California— Maybe it would be nice we, if you could have masses in the churches first and yeah, then maybe talk about other we things. Can, but, well, we can't—you know, a lot of people don't know this. I think you didn't know this, but in California, we can't even go into the church. No, with church. good reason, because Governor Newsom isn't allowed in Danny. So I'm he happy— He has to go to the French Laundry to receive communion. So, yeah, a lot of people don't know how bad California off is in this area. and But conversely, I didn't know that other states were doing better. Uh, oh, some of them are. In, but if it makes area. you feel better, Governor Newsom went to the French Laundry restaurant without a mask and all his friends without social gathering and so on, without social distancing, so he could receive communion. Why? Wait, what? Hmm? What? Why could he receive communion? Well, because you, you know you can't go into a church and receive communion, so he had to go to the French Laundry restaurant with all of his buddies and pals and no masks, so he could receive communion. Well, you don't think our governor would just go to to uh, uh, shake his groove thing with his buddies in a in a famous and expensive restaurant in violation of the law? You don't think he would do that just for a good time, do you? I do think he would shake his groove thing for just a good time, yes. Well, I don't. I think he went there to receive communion privately with 75 of his closest friends. <laughs> oh, man. he's You know what he is? He's a modern-day Warren G. Harding. You know, he, he just How so many you? friends. What do you mean? How dare you? Warren Harding was a great man in comparison to this thing. Oh, okay. I was gonna say that that's a flattering. That should be a flattering comparison to you, for you. Well, it's a flattering comparison to Newsom. Okay. It's an insult to the august memory of President Harding, <laughs> who, after all, returned us to normalcy. Boy, we could use some of that. 
Yeah, I'll I say. tell you, the next governor, if he just uses that line, I'll vote for him. <laughs> Return to normalcy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, wait, wait until we revive the Charleston. It's coming. I'm telling you. No politicians. I haven't heard that from any politician. No one is has half a brain to do that. Well, no one has half a brain. Full stop. You know, it's one thing to admit that you're a total slave of your master, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. But when your master's a halfway into the bargain, <laughs> it really makes it tough. <laughs> I mean, we're wholly owed subsidiaries of morons. This is really difficult. Our masters are totally complete, and they're, they're, they're boobs. That's just difficult. I'm not saying it's bad because I don't judge my betters, but it is difficult. Yeah. That's true. They control everything. You know, uh, kind of going on a tangent since we're just we're just chit chatting. Um, in terms of the the election and the voter fraud, you know, my favorite comment on this um, was uh, he, this person was talking about the conspiracy of it. And he says the whole thing is done in a Truman Show like conspiracy. Have you seen that movie, The Truman Show? I have. So you, do you understand where, like, uh, so Jim Carrey's, like, the center yeah. of a reality TV show, and literally his whole world is one it's giant phony. conspiracy where... And he, does, if, and he doesn't know it. And he doesn't know it. But just, you know, there's some truth to that where, you know, the media, everybody, it's like, well, no, there's no voter fraud. We don't see anything. Everything's fine. Yeah, and but, everything's but just... They're, but they're better than we are. That's what you don't understand. Stupider than we are, but better than we are. Why do you say these things? Because I can. <laughs> Why do you have to punish, Charles? I d punish? What? I'm not punishing. I'm affirming. That is a euphemism. What? Let me repeat. <laughs> All right. Let me. To you better get that checked very... out. You got a pretty nasty cough there. <laughs> it's COVID. <laughs> to, to make things very, very clear. All right. Obviously, I need to. And, I, and to do this, I need to quote the great H.P. Lovecraft. He alone, alone, can really make this stuff uh, comprehensible. Now, how do I put this nicely? The, the thing is that in Lovecraft's mythos, if you will, uh, there was this, this deity of sorts called Azatot, the blind idiot god in the center of everything. Mm -hmm. And his his servant, his messenger, and this is how I feel personally mm. about our masters. Mm. He says to the he says to Lovecraft's persona in the bark, "I am his messenger." The daemon said, as in contempt he struck his master's head. <laughs> you wouldn't dare strike your master's head. No, I wouldn't. I'd affirm my master. <laughs> You bet. 
Just the, just because he's a moron doesn't mean he doesn't own me, lock, stock, and barrel. And every one of us, too. Oh, what? Well. What? Oh, 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 oh. I see. You think just because he's master, he should have two brain cells to rub together. Well, let me tell you something, buddy boy. Just because we're wholly owned subsidiaries doesn't mean we deserve to have an owner with a brain. All right. <laughs> You're trying to parse that out, and it's not coming up nice. I can tell. I've known you since you were eight years old, and I can tell you're trying to figure something out. Don't try. It's not going to work. <laughs> All right. We've reached the end of our episode. We have, which leads us to one question. Wait, if it's Monday, what is it? Well, I would say, all things being equal, it's off the menu. But what about the soul you save? Well, if indeed you save it, it may well be your own. See you next time, everyone. God bless. Take care. And happy Advent.